Every life or death situation ultimately comes down to those two outcomes. You will survive or you will perish. When people find themselves in those types of events, whether it be a natural disaster, accident, or a violent crime, it is often not what we have that makes a difference, but what we think. Our brains can often be the most important tool for survival. State of mind often makes all the difference. In his 2010 book, Survivor's Club, The Secrets and Science That Could Save Your Life, Ben Sherwood lists 12 survival traits, psychological strengths, that survivors consistently draw upon. Among them are adaptability, faith, resilience, hope, love, purpose, empathy, tenacity, and instinct. The will to survive is something all survivors have, and the key to that will lies in one's attitude. Your state of mind is everything, even if it feels as though all is lost, and so are you. Welcome to National Park After Dark. I wonder if I was the only one who was thinking when you were listing off all the traits that survivors typically have. I'm like, okay, do, do I have that? Do I have this one? Nope. Nope. I think you have nope. the positive the positive thinking. I think I have that one. I think you have love, empathy, hope for sure. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you're like <laughs> um tenacity, I I don't know. I don't know. I don't My know survival's <laughs> not looking really great. <laughs> <laughs> I know you have like a very positive. Well, that's the thing. It's like positivity and I think that you emulate that Thank you. overall. So you're welcome. Wow, what a great way to start this episode. I love it. <laughs> I love this episode. This is so nice. Amazing. And it's taking place in our home region in New England. So I hope you like it even more. Oh, I love going back to New England for some episodes. All right. So I don't think we have anything to really catch up on. It's hard when we do recording sometimes to like kind of shoot the shit in the beginning because Cassie and I talk all day long. So it's like, hi, again. <laughs> hey, I just saw you 20 minutes ago, but... uh how are you? How are you? I'm good. Uh, how am I? I just burst into tears. <laughs> <I'm> like, <laughs> <I know. laughs> it's like, okay, scratch that. Never mind. <laughs> you know, like when someone, there's, oh, what is it? It's like, you could say, how are you? But if you say, are you okay? I'll just, <laughs> it's over. <laughs> it's over. I'll burst into tears. <laughs> yeah, I know. I like the phrase, how are you doing today? I think instead of like, how are you in the generalized sense, because that's mm. so complex so to just be like how are you doing today is i think a lot easier to answer honestly mm. than just being like how are you i like that because yeah just a little rephrase of the just add a word of the question yeah yeah i like that all right well i'm gonna just tell you a story i'm ready the story i'm sharing today is actually a recommendation that two or three people have requested over the last few months. So I decided that I would go ahead and cover it, even though it's kind of your bread and butter and it's a survival story. Uh, I love hearing survival stories, though. You can tell me as many survival stories as you want. I'm I'm here for it. Well, this is the only one I have planned for now. So uh, okay. <laughs> um, we're going to go back to the year 1939. Ah, Albert Einstein and President Roosevelt <laughs> began the Manhattan Project, 
Eugene Weidman was the last person to be publicly executed by guillotine in France. Gandhi wrote a letter to Adolf Hitler urging him to prevent a war, and Don Fendler was vacationing in Maine with his family. The Fendler family, consisting of 12-year-old Don and his twin brother Ryan, their younger brother Tom, his father Donald, and his mother Ruth had a home in Rye, New York, which is right along the Long Island Sound, but the Fendlers rented it out every summer so that they could escape up to Lake Sebastocook in Maine, which was their favorite place to be. Mr. Fendler ran a business in New York City, and he sent his family ahead of him that year. He called in early July and asked if Don and his brothers would like to go on an overnight fishing trip when he arrived in the following weeks. Roughly a week later, the trip took shape, and on July 17th, Mr. Fendler, Don, Tom, and Ryan were sitting around a fire at the Katahdin Stream campground with their companions. They were joined by family friends, 17-year-old Henry Condon, the son of a local guide, and a young man named Fred Eaton. Henry had suggested that they spend the following day hiking out Mount Katahdin, the state's highest peak, coming in at roughly 5,267 feet. It was agreed upon, and the following day, shortly after lunch, they took off to make their ascent. So let's get familiar with the area before we move forward, because I know a lot of New Englanders are really familiar with this area, but if you're not, the campground that they were staying at, Katahdin Stream, and the mountain they hiked, Mount Katahdin, are located in the north woods of Maine within Baxter State Park. However, there is a national park tie-in later, I promise you. There will be one. (laughs) There will be one. In 1920, and actually, so I have never been to Baxter. Have you? I was going to ask you that. No, I have been. I've been saying this for so many summers, I feel like, where like I'm going to go hike Katahdin. I'm going to go out there. But it's, I want to say it's It's almost seven hours from my house. So it's not... It's not an easy drive to get to, but I have I have friends who have worked up there. I have friends who have completed the AT and have hiked Katahdin, and I've heard such good things about it that I want to. But you've never been there either, right? I have not. Nope. And it's a place that has a really interesting origin story, I guess. Well, not origin story, because we all know there's a lengthy indigenous history there. But as far as the, the establishment of the state park, that has a really unique story. In 1920, Percival Baxter, who would later become one of the governors of Maine, participated in an expedition up Mount Katahdin that was dispatched to determine if the area would be a feasible national park site. And during that expedition, he fell in love with the mountain and the area. And the national park proposal eventually went flat, but Mr. Baxter was really determined to protect the area in any way that he could. He said of the area, quote, man is born to die. His works are short-lived. Buildings crumble, monuments decay, wealth vanishes, but Katahdin in all its glory forever shall remain the mountain of the people of Maine. So he used his personal wealth to begin purchasing land from various entities in the area. A lot of them were like timber companies and just different companies that had leases on the land. Sure. And he donated them to the state of Maine with the condition that the land be used as a park and would be left forever wild. He continued to do this, like buying up little pieces of land and patchworking it together 
for over three decades. So he started in 1931, and that was when the park was first established. And the park today sits at roughly 209,000 acres of expansive idyllic Maine wilderness. Wow. And Mr. Baxter's contributions account for roughly 200,000 of those acres. So all but 9,000? Yeah. Wow. That's wild. He bought that yeah. much land. That's really cool. And he went a step further because he wanted to keep this area protected even long after he was gone, this forever wild kind of mantra he had. So he left a trust of nearly $7 million to ensure that the park management had sufficient funds to continue on, at least for a little while without mm -hmm. having to even compete with tax dollars and other things like that. So he really set this area up for success. And his vision for keeping this place wild has come to life. Within its boundaries, there is no electricity and facilities within the park are considered to be truly rustic. Roughly 60,000 visitors come annually to experience over 40 peaks and ridges, 215 miles of trails, backcountry campsites, and various lakes, streams, and rivers. The wildlife here is diverse and includes moose, black bear, white-tailed deer, hawks, eagles, fisher cats, coyotes, and beaver. As the park lies within the northern forest region, the climate is typically wet. It averages about 37 inches of precipitation and 100 inches of snow a year. Wow. It's pretty far north, so that makes sense. It's true, yeah. Record lows have plummeted to 45 degrees below zero, and record highs have soared to nearly 100 degrees Fahrenheit. Spruce, maple, and birch blanket the landscape that is also home to the northernmost 10 miles of the Appalachian Trail, or the AT, kind of like you mentioned before. Katahdin is the most notable feature of the park, meaning the greatest mountain. Katahdin was named by the local indigenous peoples who called the area home for centuries, the Penobscot. Although the mountain was and continues to be held sacred by the Maliseet, Mi'kmaq, and Passamaquoddy nations as well as the Penobscot. So there's a lot of different nations that really revere this mountain. And traditionally, the Penobscot lived in the surrounding regions of Katahdin, but were really wary of climbing to its peak. They believed that an evil spirit called Pomola resided there, meaning he who curses the mountain. Pomola is frequently described as a gigantic bird-like creature with the head of a moose and is associated with bad weather conditions like snow, cold weather, and severe storms. The Penobscot believed that if they summited Katahdin, they would either be killed or devoured by this evil spirit. So in order to appease him, they would provide offerings of food. In the early 1800s, ignoring the warnings of the Penobscots, American and European surveyors set their sights on the summit. In August of 1804, two native guides were hired for an expedition to the summit, and they guided the expedition, showed them the ropes, but they themselves refused to ascend completely with the rest of their group, which then went on to become the first documented non-native summit of the mountain. Over a century later, Don Fenler was on his way to make his own summit attempt. The group took the hunt trail from their campground leading right up to the summit. The trail, which is nearly 11 miles out and back, is a very popular one and considered to be quite challenging, but the group was making good time and ran into no issues. Don and Henry in particular were the fastest hikers of the group and were often in the lead. And roughly 
roughly a mile to the top, Don turned to his father and asked if it was okay to leave the group and go ahead with Henry. Mr. Fendler agreed, but with a warning, don't leave Henry. The boys made record time and stood atop the summit. The view was expansive and they could see for miles. Fully enjoying the scenery, Henry glanced back behind them and called Don's attention. Just beyond them were large, dark, looming clouds and they were rolling in quickly. Suddenly, they found themselves in the thick of the clouds with mist surrounding them like a blanket, providing very small breaks in which they were offered a small window of views until it was quickly shut again by the fog. And that <laughs> reminds me of our... Um, Musalak. Where were we? Musalak. <laughs> I know exactly what you're thinking. Yep. I have a picture at the summit with the dogs. I'm like, I hear the views are great, and it's just like this wall of... <laughs> fog behind me. I just remember we did that hike at Musalak for people who aren't familiar is up in northern New Hampshire in the White Mountains and it's one of the 4,000 footers and Danielle and I did it with hopes of seeing beautiful views of the White Foliage. Mountains. Foliage. Remember it was oh, the yeah, fall. It was fall. Yeah it was yeah. just like supposed to be a beautiful day in fall. We were really excited. That's the one we got lost on too. Sure did. So <laughs> it was supposed to be I think eight miles round trip is that right something it was or maybe it was 11 miles round trip something like that but and anyway it took us 16 miles according to our phones after we had walked wherever we walked I'm not sure but we got to the top and it was complete cloud cover like so much cloud cover we couldn't see 20 feet in front of us yeah we couldn't and on the way the up, people. it was fine. Yeah, the way up was beautiful. It was great. Yep. And then we got lost on the way down and not because of the weather. I think we were just, I don't know what happened. <laughs> There's multiple trail systems up there that connect to the summit. I, and I think what happened is we hopped on some other trails that later mm-hmm. connected to where we were supposed to be or something. I don't know. And I think we turned around at one point and went back. To, it's just, yeah, that whole. Yeah, it was a mess. I have a, I, I think... If I can find it, I'll post it for this episode. I know. I have this video, (laughs) this video of Cassie just like laying on the ground at the end. We were at where even were we? Some like lodge or at the bottom of the mountain. There's a lodge. I think it was closed at the time because there was no one there. And I was laying on the ground yelling, "Call nine one (laughs) one!" Because then we weren't even close to our car. Remember that. Oh God! It was because there were so many people there that day. We had to park far away from the from mm-hmm. the trailhead, so that <laughs> it was just a mess. It's a, it's a good story now. Yeah, thankfully Chaska was good. My dog Chaska right now is having a lot of arthritic issues, but back then he was a young spry man and could make it. But if not, I would have been carrying him on my back. Oh my God, that would have been no. Both the boys so... were with us, and they they loved yeah. it. They didn't care that we got lost or that there were no views. They were having the time of their life. They sure were. This episode is brought to you by IQ Bar. Finding the perfect wake-me-up solution in the morning is hard. Most coffees make me super jittery with too much caffeine and too much sugar, and I end up feeling more anxious than awake, but that's why I've loved using IQ Bar. Their mushroom coffee with magnesium makes me feel awake without the jitters, and I also love to have their plant protein bars for a quick, on-the-go breakfast. But I especially love IQ Bar because they offer lots of fantastic products. Start each day 
stay right with IQ Bar brain and body boosting bars, hydration mixes, and mushroom coffees. Their ultimate sampler pack includes all three. Get seven IQ Bar flavors, four IQ Mix flavors, and four IQ Joe flavors. And today, our listeners get an exclusive offer of 20% off plus free shipping. Just text PARK to 64,000. IQ products have been a go-to for me for my adventures. They're so great when you have an early morning or if you're planning to be in the mountains or the trails for the day. They offer lots of fuel to keep you going at your best. IQ Joe is a jitter-free instant coffee packed with 200 milligrams of natural caffeine, brain-boosting magnesium, and productivity-enhancing lion's mane. IQ Joe comes in four flavors. They have original black, vanilla spice, cafe mocha, and toasted hazelnut, which is my favorite, and they taste better than any brewed coffee. Their plant protein bars are also so tasty and delicious. They have flavors like chocolate sea salt, my favorite peanut butter chip, and so much more. Whether you're running a marathon or you're running errands, IQ Bar empowers doers with superior brain and body nutrition. Their plant protein bars are packed with high-quality ingredients to keep you physically and mentally fit. IQ Bars are vegan, gluten-free, and low in sugar and carbs. IQ Bar makes the number one brain and body nutrition bar, hydration mix, and instant coffee in the United States. They have over 10,000 five-star reviews and counting. Refuel smarter with IQ Bar's Ultimate Sampler Pack. That's seven IQ IQ bars, four IQ mix sticks, and four IQ Joe sticks. And now our special podcast listeners get 20% off all IQ products, plus get free shipping. To get your 20% off, just text PARK to 64000. Get your discount, text PARK to 64000. That's PARK to 64000. Message and data rates may apply. See terms for details. Okay, so back to Dawn. The quick roll-in of the weather snapped a chill into the air, and Dawn started shivering while they were waiting for the rest of their group to appear. Off to their right, they saw a man on a spur of the trail that led to the popular Knife's Edge Trail. The man noticed the boys, quickly waved to get their attention, and started making his way over to them. It was hard to see his progress through the mist, and Dawn was getting really cold. He felt his teeth chattering as he wrapped his arms around himself to hold in his warmth, and the man was taking a while. So Dawn, fed up with the cold, decided to head back down and hopefully out of the weather to meet up with the rest of the group. Better stay put and wait for the rest, Henry advised. Henry's father was a guide, and he knew of the dangers that came when separating from others, especially in bad weather conditions. But Don peeled off his sweatshirt that laid under his fleece-lined jacket and handed it to his friend to use to stay warm while he waited. Despite Henry's pleas, Don turned to head back down the trail, hopefully breaking out of the clouds that hugged the summit. Before he even reached a dozen yards away, Don looked back to see that the clouds had totally cut off Henry from sight. He continued down the trail only to be slightly surprised that he started climbing over rocks he didn't quite remember on the way up. He shrugged it off, blaming the clouds for messing with his perception and his memory, and he continued on. Glancing around at the trees, worry started to mount when none of the white blazes marking the trail were anywhere to be seen, and neither were any of his group members, which he should have run into at this point. He shouted to no answer, repeating again several times he received nothing in return but the whistling of the wind. But he kept going, climbing over a mess of rocks and rubble, worried he was close to the edge of a cliff, unable to see more than a few yards ahead of him. To make matters worse, it started to sleep. 
and a layer of thin ice started forming on all of his clothing, seeping into his blue dungarees and chilling him to the bone. Don decided to stay put for a while, thinking that his dad and the rest might be just around the corner and that they would happen upon him at any moment. He did some dances to keep warm, some jumping jacks, some running in place, but soon tired of it and decided to continue down the mountain because he just had to get out of this weather. As he went, the terrain started feeling different. It changed from rocks and boulders to thick scrub brush. It was so dense, he was having a hard time getting through it, and at one point, it was so thick he just ended up walking right over it. Suddenly, he felt the ground give way under his footing on the vegetation, and he was falling. In a flash, he reached out to the vegetation to grab a hold, and looking down, past his dangling feet, saw that he was hovering over an opening of some type, a depression, a hole, a cliff, he wasn't sure, but it was at least 20 feet deep and littered with sharp boulders at the bottom. Terrified and praying that the roots would hold his weight, he scrambled his way back up to the lip of the hole and pulled himself out. And this is really when panic started to set in. By now, he knew for a fact he was off the trail. His group couldn't see him or hear him and vice versa. And the weather was only getting worse. He started crying and he fell to the ground and started scanning it in hopes of picking up the trail that he had lost at one point. But the combination of the worsening cloud cover and the sleet made it nearly impossible to navigate. The wind picked up and Don knew that he should stay put. In scouts, he had been taught that this tactic would give him the best shot at being found, but the weather was just too bad to handle. He didn't have adequate gear on, and he was just being pummeled by not only the mist, the cloud cover, the winds, but now the sleet. He needs some type of shelter at this point. Yep. Besides a small area on his chest, he was now completely soaked, and the wind gusts made the predicament even worse. The decision to continue on was made solely based on the weather conditions because the treeless area he was in just wouldn't do, and he was desperate to, at the very least, reach the tree line in hopes of getting some sort of cover and shelter. And it was a good thing that he did because that night a significant storm raged at the summit, producing over 40 mile an hour winds. Wow. So this wasn't just a passing... And what time of year is this again? This is July. July and it's sleeting and... Mm -hmm. 40 mile per hour winds, it's cold. Dang. Yep. Okay. Soon, Don ran into trail signage, but his mounting hopes were quickly deflated as he read the words saddle trail. First, this is not the one he was looking for. Remember, they they were on the hunt trail before. Mm -hmm. But second, he had heard of this trail before and its dangers. It had a reputation for being a strenuous, long climb with risks of rock slides and loose terrain. So he was torn. It was the first actual signage and marked trail that he had seen in a long time at this point hours. His clothes were becoming stiff as a board and following the trail would offer him at least the possibility of running into somebody. Yeah. So he contemplated what to do, but ultimately decided against following it, worrying that it would lead him further away from his camp and deeper into the woods. He elected to continue on trying to find his original route. So staying off trail. Yes. No. Like he was going to try and find no his original trail. If you're okay, on a let's trail, all remember you're going to run into someone. Let's also all remember he's 12 years old. Okay. That puts a lot of context to it. Yes. I mean, he does have the knowledge of, you know, this may give me a better chance. Like he's not, he's contemplating 
the pros and cons. It's not like he just made a blind decision, but he is extremely young. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like he had a reason behind his decision, but man, staying on the trail is always a better... If you find a trail, stay stay on it because someone mm-hmm. someone's going to walk on that trail at some point, especially in the middle of the summer. Right. The going was as tough as ever. The rocks were so sharp that they started cutting up his sneakers and he fell a few times over the rough terrain. He continued to shout and listen, shout and listen, and his shouts soon became desperate cries, and the panic started to mount. He cried a lot, and thoughts of his parents worrying about him, getting injured alone, becoming more lost, not being able to see where he was going, and the bad weather started swirling together and just making him freak out, essentially. Finally, after what Don estimated to be maybe three or four miles, he came across another sign. Elated, he ran towards it, only to quickly realize it read Saddle Trail. And not only that, it had the same small black scuff on the side that he had noticed before. So he was back at the same spot. Yep. He had wandered in a great circle. The clouds were thinning a bit, and it was easy to see that night was beginning to descend. Don made his way down the mountain, a combination of walking, jogging, and crawling, until the trees grew taller and he was well within the tree line. It was clear that he would be spending the night there, and he searched for a place to rest. Coming across a cave, he tossed a rock into it and scurried away, thinking that maybe some sort of animal was using it as shelter. It looked like the perfect spot out of the rain and sheltered from the wind, and he debated again for a while about crawling inside. Despite no critter scurrying out after his rock toss, he decided against it because he was too worried that whoever used it as home would come back in the middle of the night as he was asleep inside. Instead, he found a large tree with big exposed roots. He lay down in some moss amongst the root system, stripped off his soaked pants and tattered shoes, and tucked in for the night. He was slightly warmer than he had been earlier that day, but he was still exposed and chilly. His stomach gurgled, and Don kicked himself for eating all of his raisins, the only snack that he had, and he had eaten them on the way up. He swatted the mosquitoes and black flies swarming his face and drifted off to sleep thinking of his parents, how worried they must have been in that very moment, and how badly he felt for causing them concern. When his eyes opened the next day, Don saw Henry, his 17-year-old friend with all the knowledge of Katahdin from what berries and mushrooms are good to eat and which ones are bad, and how to navigate the terrain and what to do in an emergency situation. He was right there, and what a relief. Henry, Henry, Don yelled as he scrambled to his feet and waved his arms, but Henry didn't move. Instead, he just gazed across a small stream from behind a log, directly into a small clearing. Don followed his gaze and to his horror saw four men draped in white cloaks that stretched to the ground, each moving towards Henry with outstretched arms. Don was yelling for Henry to come to him, but there he stood, unbudging. Next, Don saw a man riding a black horse, wander by Henry, followed by a car carrying his dad. Incredulous, Don scrambled to his feet, plunged into the stream, separating them, and yelled for his father until his voice went hoarse. Running out of the stream, the woods were suddenly devoid of everyone but Don. Realizing his delusion, he fell to his knees and wept. This is how people lose it, he thought. This is when people start to run and tear off their clothes. But no, not me, not if I can help it. Keep your head 
and you'll be okay. And that became his mantra, and he repeated it over and over in his mind. That's a lot for a kid to realize you're hallucinating, to talk yourself out of it, to be out in the woods all night alone. This just sounds like such a scary experience. I know me as a 12-year-old, this would have been so scary. Yeah. And the, I mean, the way he describes that delusion, which we'll get into a little bit more, but he said that it was so like as if somebody was standing right in front of him like it was so real and it was so frightening because the scene was like yeah seeing his father was a relief but the whole thing with the white cloaked men and henry and stuff like it was scary it wasn't just a vision it was a scary one after he realized his mental state his delusions he shook it off it was time to get moving he had to get going but his shoes no longer fit His feet were way too swollen to get the shoes back on, and his pants were too cold to be put back on his body as well. After saying his morning prayers, he threw his pants over his shoulders, took his shoes in hand, and continued the journey. Reflecting back again to his scoutmaster's teachings, he decided to stick along the stream. It wasn't a big body of water by any means. It was kind of more like a small babbling brook. But Don was taught that small streams connect to larger rivers. And if he followed it downstream, eventually it would lead to some sort of civilization. With no distinguished trail, navigating the shoreline was rough going. His toenails started breaking on the rocks and his feet started bleeding. He lost his shoes while crawling through some of the dense shrubbery and became slightly worried when he pinched his big toe and couldn't feel anything. His feet were going numb. Noting his growling stomach again, he wandered away from the stream for a bit in hopes of finding food. He stumbled upon a large patch of blue-colored berries, but despite his aching hunger, he was too afraid to eat them. He was unsure of exactly what type of berries they were, and he didn't want to take the gamble. Instead, he fell asleep on a rock, only to wake up to the sounds of thunder and water droplets on his face. Sitting up, he glanced around to see hoof tracks all around his rock. A deer, or maybe a moose, he wondered, had come to investigate him while he slept. He spent the rest of the day battling the unrelenting biting of mosquitoes and black flies. They were absolutely relentless. Every single bit of exposed skin, including his eyelids, up his nose, and inside of his ears were being ravaged by the biting. And remember, he also has no pants or shoes. So they can get him everywhere, pretty much. Everywhere. Uh, and if you know, worst. if you know New, New England, England bugs, <laughs> oh my god, that's why I don't live there anymore. <laughs> They're bad. They're so bad. They're so bad. There is no like, you know, you think of like, oh, what a nice peaceful evening out on the porch on your rocking chair. No, no. What is that? That is like? not a thing. <laughs> Unless you have a screened in porch, being outside in the summer of New England is not a thing. Unless you're um, especially like in the North Woods of Maine. It, bugs don't like me for some reason. So I'm like bug repellent for people. If you stand yeah. next to me and we're outside, you'll be good. But yeah, in Alaska, I was being like eaten alive. And Cassie was like, oh, I have like one mosquito bite on my leg. Like, oh, what's that like? <laughs> As I'm in a head to toe bug net. <laughs> I was also in one too, but that was more for fun. Uh, yeah, that was for show. Yeah, that was for show. <laughs> Just to show I brought I brought the necessities with me. But mosquitoes don't like me. They never They never have. So it's a blessing. Yeah. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Finding enough time in your day can be so hard. 
I know if I had one more extra hour of time in my day, I would use it for some yoga, maybe some meditation, or maybe some extra time to paint my nails or do some skincare. You know, something to add for myself for the day. I know I'm not alone in wishing I had a little more time each day. The question is, time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? How can you squeeze that special thing or self-care into your schedule and make it a priority? Therapy can help you find what matters most to you so you can do more of it. Therapy can help you to evaluate how you're using your time and give you the tools to use your time more efficiently. Therapy can help you learn positive coping skills and how to set your own boundaries so you can be the best version of yourself. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and is designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Getting started is easy. BetterHelp will have you fill out a brief questionnaire and match you with a licensed therapist. BetterHelp also allows you to switch your therapist at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com NPAD today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash NPAD. So all of this biting and the insects, that's mostly what kept him in perpetual motion, just trying to escape the unrelenting swarms until night fell and he found shelter in a hollowed out tree for the night. The next day, so this is now day three, the sight of a bird searching for worms in the morning sun triggered Don's stomach again. He just had to eat today. His body was extremely sore, stiff and achy, so it took him quite a while to haul himself to his feet. Despite knowing that he was very lost, the severity of his situation hadn't quite completely sunk in yet. Like, yes, he knew he was lost and he was in a bit of trouble, but he didn't realize just how bad or how remote of a place he was actually in yeah because he had no idea where he was sure and he knew that he was in a bad spot but in his mind he said that in you know in 1939 in the united states of america no one could possibly get so lost that they wouldn't see another soul for days like that's what he and again he's from like the new york region like new york city region rye is really close to the city so for him i mean i know he spent time in maine his family vacations there a lot but his day-to-day life for the most part is in an area with a lot of people so in his mind there's just got to be someone around Mm -hmm. before long he came by another patch of berries but this time he knew what they were wild strawberries and lots of them he got down on all fours and shoved them into his mouth leaves and all and ate like a bear until he cleared the entire patch (laughs) He made his way up back to the water, which by now had gotten a little larger and could comfortably be called a stream rather than a brook. A point came where he had to jump across some of the boulders that were separated by water, and he threw his wet pants over first, but they fell short of their target, slipped into the water, and were quickly washed away. The first thought that he had about this was how embarrassed he would be when he had to walk into camp with no pants on. (laughs) He thought that everyone would laugh at him and it would just be such an embarrassing moment. That's such a little kid thing to do, though. Like everything (laughs) was embarrassing when you were 12. I know. Well, and it kind of speaks to, at this point in time at least, how he wasn't thinking like, oh, my form of protection for my legs is gone 
like it was about how embarrassed he would be later and when maybe he saw still everyone. not the severity of what was going on right like, exactly people weren't it, when people see him in reality they would more than likely be relieved and excited to see that he's alive not pointing and laughing that he doesn't have any pants right. on. <laughs> have pants on. <laughs> yeah. And then the second thought that he had was he thought of the rock that he was carrying in them. At the summit of Katahdin, he had picked up a rock and put it in his pocket, intending to give it to his mother as a gift when he got back from their camping trips. So when it, you know, the pants disappeared into the water and the and the rock got washed away, he was sad about that so it just it just shows like little thoughts and moments like this about you know his child he's a child you Mm -hmm. know and i don't know it just makes child yeah a very sweet one yeah unable to retrieve his pants sad his gift was gone and stressed about being a laughing stock at camp he continued on the rest of that day was spent much like the day prior swatting bugs navigating boulders rocks and shrubs that lined the water until day blended into night and he curled up at the base of a tree for his third night on the mountain. So scary. The morning of day four brought new challenges. His body was absolutely covered in insect bites, and he had been scratching at them. The itching was so intense because he was blanketed in bites. Don had ended up scratching his skin so viciously it was starting to bleed, and like the top layer of skin in at points was kind of no longer there. So before long, ants, mosquitoes, and biting flies were boring down into his open wounds, making the pain and discomfort much more intense. Sticking to the stream was his game plan, but the marshy, boggy terrain around it was making his insect problem way worse. So he decided to pull away a bit. He came across more berries and sat down for another meal. While eating, thinking of his family, he wept. He was starting to get discouraged and his strength was starting to disappear. He continued along, scoring through the thickets of briar in search of strawberries, and it was tough going. His jacket was getting stuck in the thickets and tearing, and his exposed legs were being torn by the thorns. Stumbling through and back down towards the river, he suddenly stopped when he came face to face with a black bear. It too had been munching, and the two stumbled upon each other so quickly that they were both momentarily stunned. (laughs) The bear hopped up onto his hind legs and quickly bounded off to the side, letting out a surprised cry. Don was shocked. He was still halfway crouched down and frozen in surprise when he says, he's he's like, I don't know how else to describe this. The bear, it screamed. It was like a <laughs> he like a startled the bear. Yeah. God, what are you doing here? Yeah. And then the bear took off across the stream as Don stood there, half crouched down, stunned. And then for the first time in days, Don felt some sort of levity and started to laugh. As the bear wandered off without incident, Don continued on. His thoughts floated to his father and the others in his group worried that they'd be mad that they would have to miss out on the second part of their trip, which was a visit to the city of Caribou, which is further north in Maine. So again, another like, not what your focus should be, but... Like, these are the thoughts that he's having. Yeah. Like, things that do not matter in real life. No one cares that they're missing this. They're worried sick about you, I'm sure. 
On and on he went, stopping only to cry or to pray. When he'd do so, he'd have to find a patch of moss to kneel on before he got down to say his prayers because his knees were so badly torn and sore, he couldn't stand having them just on the ground. That's heartbreaking. Just like he was raised in church and he's still Mm -hmm. bringing that into the forest and he's in pain and just picturing a little kid doing all of this just like hearing adults do it is really sad too but just knowing he's a little kid is just like oh this poor he's just like he's really going through it he worried about his feet and prayed that he wouldn't have them taken from him at this point he was no longer able to feel his feet and he was unable to curl his toes so he was really concerned about them yeah and Here's a little throwback to the episode I did on the third man factor. I don't know what episode number it is. I know I titled it Spirit or Science. So if you're interested in this, there's a whole episode on it. He says, quote, It's funny what things go through a fellow's mind at a time like that. There were times it seemed to me that I wasn't talking to myself at all. Instead, somebody inside of me was doing all the talking, someone who was encouraging me, who wanted to get me out of the woods and home to mommy and daddy, somebody who would keep me from going crazy if I just listened. So it kind of comes into play again a little bit in a couple minutes here, but that's the first. When I read that, I was like, oh, wait a minute. That sounds familiar. I've heard of this before. (laughs) The day took a turn for the better when Don stumbled across a tote road. It was an old one. It was dirt with overgrown vegetation, no signs of recent travel, and it was splayed with logs. But it was at least a semblance of some sort of man-made road. People had been here at some point. At some point. And he was confident that this road would lead somewhere. He spent the rest of the day following the road and the night sleeping alongside it, but tossed and turned as the chattering of frogs kept him awake most of the night. A chipmunk woke him up the following day. It chattered to him all morning, almost encouraging him to get up and to get moving. This was the first day that Don really dreaded getting up. He was discouraged, tired, hungry, and just hurting from head to toe. Knowing each step was torture kept him anchored to the ground until finally he peeled himself up and began his journey. The chipmunk followed him for a good while and Don thought of all the woodland creatures he had seen on his journey so far and how thankful he was for their company between the deer, chipmunk, squirrels, the bear, everyone but the bugs. To hell with those bugs, he thought. After four miles or so, Don started finding tin cans littering the road. They were old and rusted, but a sign of people. Encouraged, he rounded a bend in the tote road and came across a clearing with a log cabin smack in the middle. He was overjoyed. He could almost smell breakfast cooking inside and could almost see someone coming out of the front door and spotting him, asking him what the heck he was doing all the way out there. But as he approached, none of that happened. In fact, the cabin was long since abandoned. The door barely hung on the hinges, and aside from some salt and coffee in the cabinets, it had no food. And the smell of animals, he thought either a skunk or a porcupine, filled the entire space. He found pieces of iron and smashed them together, creating sparks. He tried to start a fire, but to no avail. And even if he did start a fire, Don was worried. Here we go again. He was worried that he would start a forest fire and that it would destroy the forest. That's really nice. That's really sweet. Probably not a concern in in northern Maine. Um, 
I mean, maybe in July there have been forest fires up there. Well, on their hike into, you know, their original um, hike up Katahdin and getting to the campground and all that, his father had pointed out the yellow signs warning about the damage that forest fires could cause. Mm. And that was enough to make Don stop his pursuit like he wasn't really getting anywhere anyway but i feel like maybe he could have if he, he was more concerned if, if about the forest than of alerting someone of him existing there <laughs> yeah or like having some warmth or whatever yeah, yeah. i mean that's very nice the forest I know, is so important. considerate yeah but it's also day five and you're starving and lost and but anyway he's very considerate Abandoning that pursuit, he looked over at the bed. An old, tattered blanket lay on a pretty disgusting-looking mattress, and Don grabbed it. With no pants, he needed something for protection. But to his surprise, a mouse was under it and clung to the blanket as he raised it up. For a moment, Don considered leaving the blanket, feeling as if he was stealing the mouse's warm home. Oh, stop. (laughs) This kid is so sweet. Ultimately, leaving the cabin with the blanket, he continued forward. I have some nightmare hair stories. I love to dye my hair and I've suffered damage from that, but there's been times it's been so damaged and horrible looking. I've refused to not wear it up or I've worn a hat to cover it completely and no one should have to feel that way. So I need to tell you about what has worked for me because I have never felt so confident with my hair and skin since I started using Pros. Pros offers a custom hair and skin routine that is designed for your specific needs and ever since I switched, I am noticing so many benefits. My hair is healthier, more moisturized and shiny than it's ever been, and my skin is feeling nourished and bright. I love having blonde hair, so I never was going to completely stop dyeing it, but now I can do that and keep my hair healthy without the damage since I switched to Pros. Pros is designed for you, so whatever problem you are experiencing with your hair or with your skin, Pros can help. They have an in-depth consultation which will evaluate exactly what you need and create a customized formula for you. They even have a review and refine tool which learns from your feedback and adjusts your formula to keep up with the seasons. Take my custom shampoo and conditioner, for example. They offered more nourishing ingredients for my dry, damaged hair and added in a hair oil to help with my breakage. With the review and refine tool, when the colder weather came around, Pros added a scalp treatment for flakiness I experience in the drier seasons. And because we're always trying to shop better for ourselves and want to give others those options too, it's really important that we mention that Pros isn't just better for you, but it's also better for the planet. They're a certified B Corp, they're cruelty free, and the first and only carbon-neutral custom beauty brand. Pros is so confident that you'll bring out your best hair and skin that they're offering an exclusive trial offer for 50% off your first subscription order at pros.com NPAD. So get your free consultation, then 50% off at pros.com NPAD. That's P-R-O-S-E dot com N-P-A-D. Don spent almost all of day six sleeping. He laid out the blanket in a clearing and completely was just overcome with drowsiness and fatigue. He napped most of the day. He awoke to searing pain on the back of his legs. Glancing back, he noticed it wasn't just the bug bites. It was worse this time. His legs, already swollen with hundreds of bites, were now deep red because he had slept so long and so hard on his stomach he hadn't moved 
And now he had the worst sunburn of his entire life. Oh, no. (laughs) Man, can't catch a break. Yeah, with no options, though. Like, what are you going to do about it? There's nothing to put on it. You can't just stop. Like, he had to keep going. And that's what he did. Joy came that day with the sight of an old telephone wire nailed to trees along the tote road, but despair came in the form of an airplane. Don was bent down drinking from the stream when he heard the hum of a plane increase to a roar. It was so loud it must have been directly over his head. He leapt up, screaming and crying and waving his arms, but the dense canopy of treetops concealed him. Things must be really bad for a plane to be involved now, he thought, and the tears came again. He started to question everything. What if that road went nowhere? What if that telephone line was long since abandoned, like the cabin he had just found? And what if he was following the road for nothing? Or even worse, the road and the wire were leading him further away from camp and not towards it. Despite his dark thoughts, the voice inside him urged him forward. Stumbling along, the blanket was heavy and bulky, and he does say it smelled like the worst thing he's ever smelled and it was like making him sick and there was some mouth, there was mice living in it so it, i can right, imagine yeah he tripped on it several times knocking him to the ground and eventually he tossed it aside and left it where it lay it was just too much of a problem it was causing issues and it was gross yeah fair continuing on he started blacking out coming to only to realize that he was in the middle of doing something like walking drinking from the stream sitting down and on one of those occasions he came to and he was examining his feet and at first he didn't recognize them as his own so this is the point in time day six that he's starting to his mind is starting to go a little bit Mm mm-hmm And in search of strawberries, he came across another bear. This one didn't see him, and he lay down quietly, and Don watched it as it munched along. He was so happy for the company and cried of sadness when the bear eventually wandered away. The loneliness was starting to wear him down just as much as the physical difficulties that he was experiencing. He could barely bend his knees at this point and would have to take each and every step like a peg-legged pirate. Thorns were embedded into the soles of his cut and bleeding feet, but it didn't matter much to him at the time because he couldn't feel them anyways. Oh my gosh. Day seven brought a choice. Dawn came to a fork in the road. The telephone wires went one way along with the tote road and the stream followed the other direction. He pondered what to do, worried no matter what he would make the wrong decision. But his scouts training kicked in and he decided to stick with the water. There were too many unknowns about the wire and the road, but the stream would always provide water, number one. Mm-hmm. And number two, it would hopefully lead to people. He veered off and immediately missed the somewhat easier travel that that road had provided as he struggled along the stream shores once again. He was so fatigued, he was tripping and stumbling easily, once falling into the stream headfirst and almost drowning. Pulling himself to shore and fully exhausted, he fell asleep where he lay, waking hours later to the sun setting. In the dusk hours, he continued on as far as he could before calling it an early night. The next morning was the first that he truly debated whether or not it was worth going on. He was starving. He could barely walk, and now he could barely lift his arms, which were weakened and bony. He was starving and becoming delirious. 
Everything hurt except his feet, which he couldn't feel. And he finally got moving, saying he felt as if he was walking on stilts and, quote, I didn't dare walk much for a while because I was afraid my feet would just fall apart and leave me walking on just my bones. On he went, navigating the boulders along the water until he slipped off of one and into neck deep water. And he kind of just sat there for a second. He's like, oh my God, like now I'm in the water and I can't get out. And he just kind of like, he wasn't at a risk of drowning. He could stand. It was just up to his neck. Just kind of like why, like a why (laughs) moment. Yeah, like God damn it. So he finally gets the strength to pull himself out, but was absolutely disgusted to find himself covered from the neck down in leeches. Oh my God. No, this <laughs> poor kid. Don had always been really grossed out by bloodsuckers, as he refers to them. And he was just like kind of like this like ew moment. And I picture it as um, so one of my favorite movies of all time is Ace Ventura. Your Not the original with Snowflake. <laughs> <laughs> Not the original one with Snowflake the dolphin, but the one with um, the bat in Africa. Do you know what I'm talking yes, about? Yes, I've seen. I've yes, actually yeah. I've seen Ace Ventura. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and like, of course, out of all the animals that Ace Ventura loves, you know, he loves the animal kingdom, but he is wicked grossed out by bats. <laughs> And he goes into the cave and all the bats start fluttering around and he runs out of the cave and it's like slapping himself all over and he's like, ugh, sick. And that's kind of how I picture, picture him with the leeches, moment. like, oh, <laughs> yeah, like, like oh. peeling them off of himself. Yeah. So he's like wildly slapping them away and he was pulling them off that were like dangling all over him. And some of them were latched on so well that he just had to roll and scrape himself with sand from a nearby sandbar to get them to detach. And after this episode, he's disgusted and exhausted, but leech free. So he lay in the sun on the sandbar fading in and out of delirium. He woke up feeling better and started his journey again. And then this is the second point in time where the third man factor comes back into play. So he's dragging himself along. He trips and he falls. And of this particular time, he says, quote, and this is a direct quote from the book, which I'll get into at the end of the episode. But I didn't want to paraphrase because I love the third man factor and I wanted his direct experience. He says, quote, I don't know whether I ought to tell something that happened that very morning but I guess I shall. It's all right, of course, but people who don't believe as I do may think it's all imagination. I believe in guardian angels. And on my trip through the woods, one of the things that comforted me and helped me bring myself out to safety was this feeling that I wasn't entirely alone. In the night, in those dark woods, that feeling helped me And in the daytime, when the going was awfully hard, I felt as though I had someone to lean on. And that helped too. I was flat on my face. I couldn't get my arms underneath me. They were so weak at the elbows. I just lay there and waited. Suddenly, I felt something take hold of me by the shoulders. Something like strong, gentle hands. And I felt myself lifted slowly until I was on my knees. I looked around, expecting to see a man, a guide maybe. And I was surprised when I could see nothing. Not a thing, but the hands were still there and they were lifting and lifting. I got first one foot under me and then the other. Then I straightened up. I was stronger and I could walk. So that's his experience with physically feeling like someone was there with him. Whether that's delirium or not, 
it made we a have huge this difference. whole discussion. Yeah, we yeah. have this whole discussion in the other episode about the third man factor. But it made, yeah, that's absolutely right. It made the difference that he needed. So whether it was his own brain firing off or it was an outside force, it made a difference to him. It took a long time and a lot of praying for Don to get moving the morning of day nine. Day nine. He struggled along for hours until he noticed a stream becoming wider and calmer. He found himself in and out of brownouts, but suddenly he was in front of what he thought to be a lake or a pond or some sort of large river, and just across it, he saw a dock. His eyes traced the land up from the dock to a clearing with two overturned canoes, right smack dab in front of two cabins. It was a mixed bag of emotions. He couldn't help but hope this would be the place that would provide him with something to eat or even better, it would be occupied by somebody. And he was working his way around the vegetation of the water, trying to get closer to the dock and the shore. And he spotted a log jutting out of the water. So he crawled onto it and just started screaming. (laughs) Meanwhile, inside, Nelson McMorrin was taking a nap. His wife, Lena, heard what she thought to be an animal crying or screaming or making some sort of guttural sound outside near their cabin. Rousing her husband awake, she urged him to go investigate what the heck was making all that noise. Nelson emerged from the cabin and his eyes landed on Don, who was trying his best to yell and wave his arms across the water. He turned inside, rushing to tell his wife to notify the ranger station immediately because he knew who Don was. At this point, everyone in the area knew. Nelson rushed across the lake in his canoe to Don's side, and as he scooped him up, Don blacked out. He woke up in a bed. Lena had helped clothe him, tend his insect bites and various wounds, and had been hand-feeding him tomato soup. Don was so exhausted, he was in and out of sleep, but when he awoke, He was given the telephone. His family was very eager to speak with him. So we know Don's experience up until this point, but Mm -hmm. of course, there's a whole other side of the coin going on here. Yeah, what's his family going through? What's the rescue team? I mean, I'm assuming there's rescue teams that have been looking for him. Yes. So back at the summit, the man that Henry and Don were waiting for initially, remember they saw that man in the mist and that's Henry's like, let's wait for this guy and then we can head down together. Mm -hmm. His name was Reverend Charles Austin and he had actually reached Henry 10 minutes or so after Don decided to head down on his own. Henry and the Reverend weren't surprised that they didn't see Don on their way down the trail because the time difference, obviously, they took off at different times. And of course, the weather conditions are bad. It's only when they met up with Don's father and the rest of their group roughly a mile down the trail and saw that Don was not with them at all that they realized something happened and perhaps he was lost. Don's father and Tom Don's youngest brother, teamed up and Henry and the Reverend teamed up to head back up the trail to the peak in search for Don. They were yelling his name and scanning the mist for any sign of him anywhere around. But after an hour or so, it became really clear that the situation was worse than they thought and they needed additional help. Forest rangers were alerted and a search party was dispatched right away. One of the rangers in the search party described how he had been a mountaineer for years. He had climbed and hiked many of the mountains in New England, but nothing compared to how difficult Katahdin was. He described the awful weather, the difficult terrain, how much he was aching, and even just all in a single day, and how much he worried for all the ways that the boy could have perished. 
out there. Like in his mind, he's like, damn, like I do this for a living and this is tough for me. Not encouraging at all. That's right. Adding validity to how serious this really is. Mm -hmm. Don's father was frantic with worry and notified as many people as possible to garner attention and it worked. Aside from the first groups of rangers, several different branches of the U.S. Forest Service got involved along with different timber crews that worked in the area, civilians, and members of the nearby Millinocket Paper Mill and the Maine State Police, who eventually got bloodhounds onto the trail. The dogs picked up Don's scent pretty quickly, but lost it at the precipice of a sheer 400-foot drop called Saddle Slip. The dogs also had a really difficult time navigating the terrain, which was so sharp that their paws started shredding up. Oh, poor things. Additional dogs were sent in, and this time with fitted leather booties to protect their feet. The National Guard supplied an additional 65 searchers, and the State Forestry Service provided a plane. For the first five days of this search, it was believed that Don hadn't made it below the timberline, and therefore the search was focused solely in the Alpine Zone. It's only after Mr. Fendler urged rescuers to move their operation below the tree line that they did. He was confident that his son was alive, and meanwhile, most of the search party believed that by that point, five days in, they were searching for a body and spent a lot of time searching in the deep crevices between the large boulders for his remains. Throughout the search, Mr. Fendler gave many different interviews and spoke to the press at length, including the Boston Globe, stating, quote, I'm still trying to make myself believe there's a faint thread of hope, despite all of the failing hope of the officials around him. At its height, the search comprised of 500 people, the largest search effort in the state's history up until that point. But after a week, it dwindled to just a handful of volunteers led by Don's father, who was just adamant in, had so much faith in his son that he just knew he was alive. When the news that Don had been found reached Mr. and Mrs. Fendler, they were actually in the hospital. Mr. Fendler had sustained a pretty significant eye injury during the search, and word that their son had been found reached them when he was admitted and his wife was was visiting with him. Don's two uncles arrived to the Nelson's cabin several hours after Don was rescued and word got out, along with a physician. And the following day, Don was transported by canoe to be reunited with his family and then was transported to a larger hospital in Bangor, Maine. His reunion with his mother, father, and siblings was touching, and millions of people across America breathed a collective sigh of relief. His story had been circulating newspapers and was broadcasted on the radio waves all week long, and much of the nation had been following Don's search effort closely. Oh, wow. So his story of survival gave hope to thousands of people. When recreating Don's wanderings and mapping out the route that he took, rangers, guides, and people alike were absolutely astonished. The most direct route that he described was 48 miles long. Wow. But it was estimated that he had actually traveled at least twice, maybe even three times that distance because he was wandering, making circles. He doubled back several times. Like this wasn't just a point to point thing. Like that would have been the absolute minimum that he would have done. So 48 miles minimum in nine days by a 12-year-old boy Alone. that just went through all that other stuff. Yeah. Like, had no gear. He was shoeless. He was, Yeah. This meant that he averaged 10 to 14 miles a day. It's like walking the AT. That's like yeah. what thru-hikers Unintentionally. do. <laughs> Unintentionally, yeah. And thru-hikers are not always, but normally adults. And prepared. And if they are kids, they usually have 
family with them right or an adult i know where they're going yeah yeah Despite the extensive search efforts that took place, based on the recreation of his route, after that first night, searchers were never within 10 miles of Don, who had gone off the mountain on the north side straight into the backcountry that is seldom ever traveled. Don had been lost for eight nights and nine days. He was 12 years old, 4 feet 7 inches, and 74 pounds when he was separated from his group. When he was rescued, he weighed 58 pounds. Oh my gosh. After his rescue, Maine and the nation celebrated. Don became an icon in the state of Maine, but like I said, his story had reached millions of people, especially after Life Magazine and the New York Times picked up his story. Parades were held in his honor, and the governor of Maine declared him the most courageous boy in America. And a year after his rescue, he was invited to the White House, where he was granted the Army and Navy Legion of Valor Medal from President Roosevelt, recognizing him as the outstanding youth hero of 1939. His life returned to normal. He went on to graduate from the New Hampton School, which is a private college prep school in New Hampshire. He enlisted in the Navy and served as a CB during World War II. Next, he went on to study forestry at the University of Maine before training as a Green Beret and making a career in the Army and serving in Vietnam. Wow. So he never got sick of the tough lifestyle. Sure did it. <laughs> sure did it. <laughs> He married and had four children and retired at the rank of lieutenant colonel in 1978 and settled in Tennessee. However, Maine had always had his heart, and he returned to the state every single summer, and every fall, he went on to speak prolifically at Maine schools well into old age, giving presentations to children about his ordeal, how to stay safe in the wilderness, how to prepare for hikes, and, most importantly, the importance of never giving up. He became a local legend, icon, and hero, and in fact, for years, his book was required reading for Maine school children. I love that. It was like part of his curri- their cu- curriculum. That's really and cool. The, yeah. The book that I'm referring to so much um, is called Lost on a Mountain in Maine, and it's by Don Fendler, but it's as told by Joseph B. Egan. And it's interesting because the published date in the book, if you look at it, says like 79 or something, mm-hmm. but it was a typo. And it was actually published in the like the late 30s and 39, pretty soon after his experience. And what happened is he didn't write it himself. He told his story to Joseph B. Egan, and he basically just transcribed it into this book. Oh, wow. So it's all first person perspective from him as a child pretty much right after it happened. So the book is really small. It's less than 100 pages, but it's coming directly from Don right around the time that he actually went through this. And the cabin that Don eventually stumbled upon on day nine is referred to as the Lunxu's camp and is actually quite far from any real civilization. It's 14 miles from a small community called Grindstone and seven miles to the village of Stacyville, which is really difficult to reach from that point. So if he hadn't stumbled across that cabin, he probably would have died um, at that point because he was still really far from civilization. And at that point, he was just his body was shutting down and yeah, he probably would have died in the in the woods. And the fact that people were there when he got there. Right, right. The Lunxu's camp is now a historic site within the Katahdin Woods and Waters National Monument. There it is. Here we are. Here it is. <laughs> it's a national park. <laughs> 
Located at the heart of the monument on the east branch of the Penobscot River, this area has a lengthy indigenous history as well as European settler, farmer, and trapper history. Cabins and camps were built in this area in the 1800s, and one of which Don came upon. Today, the Lunksu's area offers picnicking, paddling, and campsites, and it has a really small boat launch that serves as a put-in point uh, for people paddling the Penobscot. Katahdin Woods and Waters National Monument covers 87,500 acres directly next to Baxter State Park, and actually borders it to the east. Established as a national monument in 2016 and certified as an international dark sky sanctuary in 2020, artists, authors, scientists, conservationists, recreationists, and others have been drawn here to create, study, and to explore. As with Baxter State Park, the monument in Maine's Northwoods is rugged. There's no cell service, few amenities, and no formal services. Water purification or bring your own water is necessary. And most of the roads are unpaved, with the exception of the Katahdin Woods and Waters National Scenic Byway, which leads from Baxter State Park into the monument. In the summers, fishing and boating are popular in the lakes, streams, and rivers within the monument. And in the winters, snowshoeing, snowmobiling, and ice fishing are fun activities that people partake in. Like I mentioned, the book, most of my research came from it, again called Lost on a Mountain in Maine by Don Fendler, as told by Joseph B. Egan. I also watched some excerpts from the documentary called Finding Don Fendler, which is really cool because I only, and I don't know if like my research skills are getting uh, rusty or something, but I could only find 20 minutes of an excerpt from this documentary. But it's really cool because it's a lot of different footage of him doing presentations to school children, recounting his experience. And there's a lot of interviews just one-on-one with him. And he's an old age now. Like at this point, he's probably in his 70s. He's still alive Um, today? No, I'll get to that. But in this documentary. Okay. And then it's also, they also have patchworked in. It's so cool. So remember how I said his two uncles went to the cabin when he was originally rescued? Yes. So- one of his uncles had a film camera, not like a camera, a video. Why can't I? What the hell am I trying to say? A video camera? Yeah, a video camera. Yes. I just forget <laughs> what it's called in the third. You know, there's a special, an old video camera. And several years later, they found the footage and he was shooting footage of Don and the his reunion with his family oh, wow. and the cabin. And it's really grainy. And I mean, it's from the 30s type of footage. But then he would like do the landscape of like the area that he was found in. So there's footage from that day that's in that documentary. That's really interesting. Yeah, which is really cool. But excitingly, there is a major motion picture So a movie that is set to hit theaters and hopefully some major streaming platforms, and it's in the works as we speak. Well, as I've been researching this, this is early 2024, it says that Sylvester Stallone's production company called Balboa Productions is currently in the post-production stage on this movie that is going to be titled Lost on a Mountain in Maine, 80 Miles, nine days, one step at a time. So hopefully we should see this movie sometime. Like, I don't know how movies work, but maybe late this year or early next year yeah. if it's in post-production. Yeah, because that means it's already been filmed. It's just being edited and thrown together right. and finding people to sell it to. I don't know. I don't know how films don't know. work, but if it's in post-production, it means it's already been done. Yeah. So I'm That's really so excited. Yeah. I want to yeah. see that. I'm so curious of how it'll come out and where they'll film it, where they're filming. 
where they will film it because they did that. I'm sure it, it's on location in Maine. I, would I think. don't know because remember they did the Pam Bale story uh, in oh, the White yeah. Mountains <laughs> and they filmed it in like Switzerland, Switzerland. or something like that. And We're like, hold on a minute. It was supposed to be on Mount Washington. <laughs> yeah. Like Mount Washington wait, wait, wait. does not look like that. Where is this? <laughs> and that's so interesting. I, I know there's probably a lot of decisions behind that. But to me, it's like if you're recreating a true story at a place that's extremely accessible to film in, well, why wouldn't you do it there? It is a winter story on Mount Washington. So it's not extremely. Okay, but they went to Switzerland. Yeah, but Switzerland, you can get into high alpine alpine zone areas in like good weather and it be uh-huh. okay versus good weather on mount washington it's one of the windiest places in the world i imagine that that would be very difficult to film in but i agree i agree however there's some there are some scenes that she's just like driving yes. or there's like landscaped fo- like footage it's like okay that is very clearly not new hampshire New Hampshire. Like they could have used the lodge that she went to and they could have done at least the beginnings of the trails, you know, their signage and stuff. But she's very clearly hiking in some places that are not New Hampshire. Yeah. Even slightly. Like they don't even try to make it look like New Hampshire. So misleading because someone who's never been to New Hampshire probably is probably like, wow, what an amazing place. There's a TikTok going around right now and it's like, this is Manchester, New Hampshire. And it's, oh, yeah. have you seen it? And it's like the Italian yeah. coast. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Like that is not Manchester, New Hampshire, but we could, we could dream. Yeah. Okay. To wrap this up. In 2008, Don was quoted in the Bangor Daily News saying, quote, I hope the message that I give sinks in. It's really about faith and determination. That's the whole message. It was that exact formula, faith and determination, that Don attributes to his success in 1939. He may have walked out of the woods then, but he ultimately returned. He told the Bangor Daily News in 2014, quote, When I die, my ashes are going over Mount Katahdin. My brother said he'd fly or get someone to fly up. Yep, they're going to put me in a bean can. Don Fendler passed away on October 10th, 2016 at the age of 90. Maine locals or Mainers, as they are, are referred to, can be a hearty, tough crowd. Under normal circumstances, no one is considered a local, a true Mainer, unless they were born and raised in the state. But Don Fendler is the exception. He became so beloved by the state that July 25th, which was the day he was rescued, officially became Don Fendler Day in the state of Maine. I love that. That's really cool. Don's account of his endeavor in his book, Lost on a Mountain in Maine, ends with how thankful he was to be laying in that cabin safe and sound. He thanked God for his good parents and for all of his help in the wilderness. His scout training certainly played a role in his survival, but ultimately, it was his determination and strength of will that led him out of the woods. And that is the story of Don Fendler and his crazy time on Mount Katahdin. Well, thank you for telling that story. I love when you do survival stories. I think that they're so fun and I love hearing them. And the fact that he was a kid who went, this would be tough for anyone. And the fact that he was a kid, it just, 
It's a, yeah. it's an amazing story. It really is. And I liked how you started the story with talking about how your point of view and how how that can be a huge impact on your survival. And like you said, a lot of it through it is he didn't really realize maybe the severity of it, but he always kept the thought of just around the corner, just around the corner. And then of course, you've referenced his faith that he had throughout. I mean, you detailed mm-hmm. him having trouble getting down to his knees because he was injured, or like just in so much mm-hmm. pain. And uh, it was a really cool story that I'm very happy had a good ending because if you had told that entire story, and then he died in the end. I think I we prefaced all it as a survival story. So. <laughs> yeah, I know it is. It's a cool story, and I'm glad for everyone who recommended it. The book, like I said, is a quick, easy read. Um, so I definitely recommend it. We'll put it on the book rec section of our website, and hopefully, the movie comes out. And we can all have a group watch party that'd be, be fun like, okay you know how yeah. amazon you can do that like you can link with everyone we can just be like all right everyone watch the movie now and go <laughs> yeah <laughs> imagine like crash amazon that'd be fun like Ten thousand people doing it at once i'm sure they get listeners. sylvester stallone would be like wow <laughs> this was a good movie to get behind yeah <laughs> um okay cool well that's it Uh, Thanks for hanging out with us, and we'll see you next week. In the meantime, enjoy the view. But watch your back. Bye, everyone. Bye. Thank you so much for joining us again this week. If you have a trail tale or story suggestion, send us an email at stories at npadpodcast.com. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at National Park After Dark and on Twitter at npadpodcast. Join our Outsiders Only community on Patreon or Apple subscriptions to listen ad-free, unlock monthly bonus episodes, and exclusive content. And remember, when you support our sponsors, you are supporting our show. For our exclusive discount code, and source information from today's episode, check out the show notes. For more information on our show, our book recommendations, merch updates, and more, visit our website at npadpodcast.com. And please rate, review, and subscribe from wherever you listen to podcasts.